Welcome to this week's podcast of Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Hey, it's so good to have you guys here. If you want to grab a Bible, we're on Mark, the end of Mark chapter 4 and Mark chapter 5. That's kind of what we do at Bergen Park Church. We try to walk through the Bible, and here's, here's why. When you think of Jesus and maybe think of a diamond, a diamond has so many different facets to it, you can turn it. And every facet has a different color and maybe a different angle to it, and that's the nature of Jesus. And there's aspects of Jesus that are compassionate and forgiving, and then there's aspects of Jesus that are powerful and authoritative. And some aspects, when you turn Jesus, you love, and you're like, wow, yeah, I like that. And then there's other aspects that maybe culturally or individually we have a harder time with. And this may be one of those facets. For some of you, you're going to be like, finally, this church is talking about this. For others, you may struggle a bit. Because we're going to come to two stories that magnify who Jesus is. By using very powerful images, images that come out of the Old Testament, but also images that reflect Jesus' power to destroy evil. Now, we don't don't tend to, maybe most of us don't like the idea of the demonic, or evil spirits, but that's something Jesus was very comfortable with. And that scripture says he came to destroy the devil's work. So we're gonna look at two stories. We're gonna put them together. And the reason I'm gonna try to put them together, it's a lot. So I hope you guys are ready, kind of ride with me on this. Uh, This whole week I was wrestling with these passages. Why did you take such a big section? I don't know. But these two stories we're gonna look at, one is the calming of the sea, and you may have heard of that story. And the second is Jesus drives out, drives out this man has a demonic spirit. And in Mark's gospel, Luke's gospel, Matthew's gospel, they're always together because they're really trying to show us something about the nature and the character of Jesus and, and who he is and how he relates to the God of the Old Testament. So you guys ready for that? That's kind of a big picture. And, and really, here's a pattern I want you to see as I was reading this. When you study the Bible, you always want to start just with observations, Because you can get kind of weird when you jump to interpretation until you just observe. And here's what I observe in this passage. Something crazy happens in two of these stories. There's a demonic person in a sea that's raging, and the people are scared. They're they're terrified at what they see. And then Jesus kind of shows up, and he addresses the problem. And now instead of being terrified of the situation, they're all terrified of Jesus. And you're going to see that pattern. Something's happening. Jesus shows up. The people are afraid. Jesus does something, and their attention's no longer on the scene. It's on Jesus, and they're going, oh, my gosh, who is this? So let's jump into it in Mark chapter 4. We're going to pick it up in verse 35. And we got a section to get through, so uh, let's, let's jump in. You guys, hopefully you're ready. I hope I'm ready. Verse 35. And on that day when evening came, he said to them, so this is Jesus saying to his disciples, let us go across the other side of the side of the lake. And leaving the crowd, they took him with him in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on a cushion, and they awoke. They woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you care? That we are perishing? And he woke and he rebuked the wind and the seas, and he said, Peace, be still. And the wind and ceased, and there was great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? 
And they were filled with great fear. And they said to one another, who is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? In chapter five, and they came to the other side of the sea in the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. And he lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with, with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. And no one had the strength to subdue him. And night and day he was among the tombs and in the mountains and he was always crying out and he was cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell down before him, crying out with a loud voice. He said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to me, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what's your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out into the country. And with a great herd of pigs was feeding nearby on a hillside. And they begged him, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. And so he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down a steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. And the herdsmen fled and told it to the city and the, and the country, and people came to see what was happening, what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had a legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described it to him and what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they begged began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting to the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, now go to your friends. Tell them what the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how Jesus, what Jesus had done for him and everyone mar marveled. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Hey, would you pray for me? I'll lift you up as well. Father, just, wow, there's a lot to take in and there's a lot in our life when we walk in. And I don't know how those two things meet sometimes, but Holy Spirit, you do. And so we depend on you. Help us to see Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here's the scene. Jesus is in a boat and he's, he's in a boat because he was teaching parables. And he was in a boat because there were all these people on the shoreline and they couldn't hear him. So he got in a boat and he pushed out. And so chapter four, he's teaching a whole group of people. Now it's the end of that day. And he's been teaching all day. So he's tired, right? He's exhausted. Let's get out of here, guys. Now he can't get back on the shore because there's all these people. And so what he does is he, okay, let's go to the other side of the lake. So that's kind of the storyline. And he's with his disciples and there's not just one boat. It actually says there's, there's a number of boats. And what happens? Verse 37, this windstorm. And it's interesting, it's described as a windstorm. It starts that way. This wind comes in and it begins to cause the seas to rise and this storm appears and it begins to cause the boats to be filled with water. Now, I wanna show you a picture just to remind you, this, these are real stories from real places. Here's a picture of the Sea of Galilee from Google Earth. 
And we think that Jesus is in Capernaum. That's kind of his home base. That's where he, for the most part, laid his head at night in Peter's house. And that's the area where they're ministering. And he gets in a boat and they're going to travel across the northern side of the Sea of Galilee to that region on the far side. And now when you look at the sea, how many of you have actually been here? I've never been here. I know this. Yeah. Okay. So you guys may, if you've seen this, if you go to the next shot, um, when, when you come to the Sea of Galilee, there's actually these plateaus kind of surrounding, maybe somewhat like Evergreen Lake, but not, you know, as you're at Evergreen Lake, you're kind of in a bowl, right? And around you are all these these mountains and plateaus. Well, in a much greater sense, when you're at the Sea of Galilee, around you are all of these mountains and plateaus. And to the western side, there's this massive range called the Golan Heights. And if you keep going to the west, you run into Jordan, right? If you know your geography, I only know it because I looked at it today. Uh, you have Syria and you have Iraq. And that's a very deserted, hot region. And when the winds would come across the desert, they'd be pretty warm. And if you look to the left-hand side and you see on that eastern side, there's the, sea of, uh, there's the Mediterranean Sea. And again, there were this, these plateaus that would rise up about 1,500 feet. And actually, if you guys would touch the button one more time, there may be a little video that shows up of this that kind of give you a perspective of what the Sea of Galilee looks like. Maybe not. The video's not playing. It's okay. Um, the Sea of Galilee is about 14 miles from north to south. And at its widest point, it's about seven to eight miles. And this is the area where Jesus is. And what's happening often in the afternoon time is these winds would come together. The hot winds over the desert, right? The cooler winds over the, uh, from the Mediterranean Sea. And they would meet at the Sea of Galilee, which is 700 feet below sea level. I remember when I first moved here, and I was talking to a number of folks in here. And I said, I love hiking. And they, you, some of you said to me, don't hike around afternoon, right? Above tree line. Why? What happens when you hike around 2 p.m. in the afternoon above tree line? Lightning. It's just, it's a reality. And I've felt that. I've actually been above tree line at 2 p.m. and the sun's out and I see clouds coming and I start, have you ever felt that? Your hair on your arms stands up and you're like, uh-oh, okay, this is why they said not to do that. Well, this was a natural phenomenon in the afternoon. These storms would come in and that's kind of What's happening? And there's actually, the next picture, if you go to, is a picture of, of a boat that was found. It was found, uh, it's probably from the first century, and it was found when there was a, a drought. And this is one of the boats that maybe was very similar to what Jesus was in. It was 27 feet long. It's about seven feet wide and about four feet deep. So if you've been out on the sea, you're usually in something bigger than 27 feet. Usually you're in something that's at least 40 feet. So you could imagine maybe eight to 10 men in this boat as these winds are coming up. I don't know how Jesus slept in it. Sometimes they said there were platforms above it. I don't know. I wasn't there. But this is a picture of what, what the disciples were in. And there's a lot of artwork. If you go to the next image around this, this is Rembrandt. And so this is a nice one. And, and you can kind of see, it, it's hard to see that part in the bottom, but that's actually Jesus down at the bottom, and he's talking to his disciples. And so at the bottom, there's this picture of peace, but up above, it's just chaos. And so it's a very violent, violent picture. It's, it's fascinating, actually. And what's Jesus doing as they're, they're crossing the sea? He's asleep. And that's kind of an odd detail, but we're supposed to contrast, I think, in this story, 
the, the calmness, the peace of Jesus with the chaos of the storm and the chaos of the disciples. The disciples are just terrified. And, and that's surprising because they're fishermen. And so I imagine they've been on the sea at times where storms have come up. So for a, a disciple to be terrified, the fishermen to be terrified, it must have been terrifying. It must have been a frightening experience. And that's what's taking place. And Jesus is asleep. And so verse 38, we start to see what's really happening. Look at verse 38. And so they go to Jesus. Good call. You're afraid. Go to Jesus. Teacher. Now here's the statement. Don't you care? This storm is in my life. I'm concluding you don't care. Notice we're perishing. Not that we're just scared. This is life and death. My life is in jeopardy. Jesus, you don't care. Have you found yourself in that, that place? I like Eugene Peterson in the message. When I'm often studying the Bible, you want to compare translations. And Eugene Peterson's more of a paraphrase. But here's how he translates verse 38. And they roused him and said, teacher, is it nothing to you? Do you feel the weight of that? Is it nothing that I die? I'm suffering. I'm hurting. Jesus, is it nothing to you? That, that's the mind of the disciples. They look at Jesus, and for all they know about Jesus, they, they've come to the conclusion in this moment he doesn't care, and yet they've walked with him. They've seen his compassion. They've seen his love, but they've kind of forgotten that like you do. When bad stuff comes, I mean, my story of Jesus and all that he's done in my life, it like goes to nothing when suffering comes in my life, I forget. And that's, that's where they are. And they're afraid. And understand, some of their fear is justified. If you're around somebody with no fear, that's a dangerous person. Have you ever watched Free Solo? Wow. I mean, this guy climbs El Capitan. He has... Nothing to hold him up but his fingers and his toes. And this guy climbs up these sheer rock walls. And even watching it just on my small television, I'm frightened. I'm, I'm terrified. And they did a study on him. And you know he has no fear mechanism in his brain. And that's why he's so good at doing that. But fear is helpful. Because what does fear do? You're in trouble. And therefore you need help. Fear leads you to cry out. And their first response is good. They're afraid. They, what did they do? They cried out to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, we need help. But beneath their fear was a lie. Did you notice that? Beneath their fear was a limiting belief about God, a lie about themselves and what's happening, right? They look at the situation and, and they see what's happening and it's not true. So notice what Jesus does, verse 39. And again, he's at peace in the midst of a very chaotic situation and he wakes up. And he rebukes. He rebukes the wind and the seas. And he says, peace be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great, Mark's emphasizing, there's a peace, there's a calm. And then he looks at him and asks what seems to be an insensitive question. Why are you afraid? But then he brings in that next idea. Do you have no faith? Two things he's addressing in the disciples. One, there's fear. But there's underneath the fear is, is the absence of faith. Now, let's diagnose the disciples. If you've been following along with us, Matthew builds on itself, so go back, maybe listen to last week. When Jesus teaches the parables, he has his disciples with him, and after he teaches the parables to the crowds, he gets his disciples together. Remember this? And he teaches them, it says, the secret of the kingdom of God. And so he's giving more to his disciples about who he is, 
about why he has come and how God is at work in the world. But the problem, remember last week, if you've been with us, part of parables is you have to listen. And so as Jesus was with his disciples, he was explaining who he is and what's going on. This storm kept them from listening. What does suffering do? What do storms do? It keeps us from listening to God and we start listening to ourselves. Maybe we listen to the evil one that lies and steals and destroys. Or we listen to the people around us. The one thing we don't do is we don't listen to Jesus. And so a lack of faith, fear sets in. You don't care what's going on in my life. And so he says, why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? Now, I want you to see something here. If you keep reading, we're going to go into chapter 5 next week. But really what's happening in chapter 4 at the end, Jesus is going to begin talking about faith. You know, Mark lays out this gospel very strategically. It's not just chronologically, like they're just having their diary and they're going through it. No, Mark lays it out in a way that's developing ideas. And faith starts to get developed from here all the way on in the next chapter. And the question is, who do you expect to have faith? Now, we expect the disciples to have faith, but in chapter 5, there's actually these parallel stories. And you may have heard of these. There's a parallel story of two people who were desperate. They're in a storm, you could say, and they come to Jesus, right response, they cry out. One is this guy named Jairus. He has a name in the story, and he's a synagogue leader, highly respected, religious, moral. And then in the middle of the story is this unnamed unclean Gentile woman who has some kind of disease or something that's been affecting her for years. And as you look at that story, you ask the question, okay, who do you expect to have faith? The highly respected religious man who has his life together or this woman who is unclean and has been desperate for 12 years. And what we see is faith shows up in surprising people. Remember the parables, mustard seed, in surprising ways. Often we ignore certain people based on outward appearances, but God sees something deeper within them that even in her storm, she trusts in Jesus. Now contrast that right to the disciples. They're responding to Jesus, and did you notice Jesus still answered their request? That's kind of an encouragement for us. You don't have to get it right all the time. Do you ever wonder that? I prayed, and I must not have prayed it right. Listen, God is gracious. He knows the intention of your heart. He may want to teach you through the experience, but it's not just about getting it right. Jesus, he responds. And we're contrasting this scene. And so look, again, there's a second idea in verse 39. Not just the idea of faith, but there's some language in verse 39 that you may not see right away. If I say the date, September 11th, is that just the date? a random date that I chose out of the calendar. Now, when I say September 11th, an image comes to mind or maybe an emotion or maybe a certain moment or actually a story may have come into your mind of what life was like and then what life is like after. Well, when, when Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, when the disciples heard the statement, he rebuked the waves, be still. It brought images to the disciples' mind. And, and where is there in the story of God a moment where God said, be still? And he rebuked the waves. And, and there was peace. And his people, if you remember this story, his people were just like the disciples. They're terrified. God had rescued them. Maybe you're kind of picking up. It's the story of the Exodus. God rescued Israel out of 
Egypt and brought them to the Red Sea. And when they got there, what did they say to God? Hey, did you just, or to Moses, did you just get us out of Egypt to kill us on the shoreline? It's kind of like the disciples, right? They ha- they've seen God work, but they don't have faith. And so they're on the shoreline. And does God answer their request? Yeah. He, he splits the sea. And then they pass through on dry ground. And see, the Bible sees that Exodus story, and Mark sees it as foundational. This is why we need to know the Old Testament. It's not like the old is old and it's dusty and you don't need it. It's foundational. And it lays the foundation for understanding who is Jesus. Because see, the whole Old Testament, the New Testament, it uses the story of the Exodus as a foundational story to show you who God is. So let me just show you real quickly. I think this is helpful. In Psalm 106, here's how the psalmist describes that moment. And this is years later, right? Reflecting back Psalm 106, verse 9, it says, He rebuked the sea, and it became dry. And he led them through the deep as through a desert. And you see that language. Moses, God, through Moses, he rebukes the sea, and it becomes dry. And then what happens through the biblical story is that the authors will take that moment the Exodus story and the crossing of the Red Sea, and they will use it in a way to remind themselves of the power of God, of who their God is and what he's done for them. So in Psalm uh, 89, look at this. Psalm 89 says, O Lord of hosts, God of hosts, who is mighty, who is mighty as you, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging sea when its waves rise, you still them. Here's the psalmist in a moment. He needs to remind himself of God's faithfulness. What does he do? He goes back. He reminds himself of what God did in that moment, how his power showed up. Now, also in Psalm 69, you'll see this. And I want you to notice the context here. As you read verses 1 and 2, save me, O God. So what does he want to be saved from? It says waters. Is he drowning? Waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the floods, they're sweeping over me. What does it sound like that he's literally drowning? Is he literally drowning? Is he in the Red Sea? No, but that's what it feels like, right? He's using that foundational story. He's reminding himself of what God did and what God's people were like. I feel like I'm in that sea. I feel like I'm in the boat. Sometimes you need to talk to Jesus this way. I feel like I'm in the boat, Jesus. You don't care about me I need you. And so notice what was really going on in verse 14. Deliver me. They need deliverance. They need to be rescued from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered. Okay, here's the truth. From my enemies, from the deep waters, there's someone that's attacking them. And they use that language. You see that? Of the Red Sea to to bring back the idea of who God is, of his power and his might. So then when you go back to Mark, Remember, Mark's writing this, Jesus has died and he rose again. And he's talking to us and he's saying, I want you to understand who Jesus is. Now, in our day and age, we would just say, hey, just Mark, just one sentence, Jesus is God. Okay, that's enough. That's not how he approaches it. Instead, he uses stories that are very full and rich. And within them, he wants you to see something about Jesus that's tied into Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. That in this story, Jesus is standing in the very place that Yahweh did when he calmed the Red Sea. And see, that's startling. Because you notice what happens after Jesus calms the sea, right? In the lives of the disciples, what's the question they're asking? Same when you would, who in the heck is this? 
Now, they've been with him, so they've seen, right, aspects of the diamond, right? Compassion, mercy. Oh my gosh, I wasn't ready for that. You are much greater, more powerful than I ever realized. The only, I try to find an illustration for this, and forgive me, this is the best I can do, is Ned. Do you know Ned from Spider-Man? The Tom Holland series, there's like four of these. You guys not with me? Okay, this didn't help. All right, anyways, there's this moment, Ned has his best friend, he's Peter Parker. And, and one day, Peter Parker comes in as Spider-Man, he's climbing on the walls, and Ned's on his bunk bed, and Ned realizes my best friend is Spider-Man. And it's kind of one of those disorienting moments where you go, wait a minute, my categories for you don't fit anymore. And actually in the movie for the next like five minutes, all Ned does is ask questions. You know, he's constantly saying to him different things. And can you do this? And how do you do that? And what does that look like? Well, that's a poor, terrible illustration of what the disciples are experiencing on, on steroids. Because they look at Jesus and they're like, wait a minute, you're Spider-Man? You're God. Now, we've wrestled with that, right? To this point, the disciples have thought, maybe he is the Lord. We know he's the prophet. We think he's Messiah. Now, all those categories are just shaking, and they're terrified of Jesus. Do you feel that? He has the power. Wait a minute. You were compassionate to my mother-in-law, and yet you can calm the sea. There's this disorientation as they look at Jesus and they realize this is the God of the universe in human flesh. That's how human beings should react in that moment. It's, it's disorienting. It's overwhelming. They see Jesus clearly. Now, it's interesting, you know, in Mark's gospel, and I've shared this with you a few times, when there's a question in Mark's gospel from a human being, who answers the question? Do you remember this? The demons do. Mark sets it up. It's weird. It's just how he does it. It's kind of cool. Every time a human being asks a question, there is a demonic voice that speaks up in the next section. And so when we ask this question, who is this? Mark doesn't give you an answer, does he? No, that's why we have this next story. And we're going to go real quickly through that. That's why we tie these two stories together. Who is, who is Jesus? Well, when you jump into the next story, they're, they're across the lake, right? They've gone across the northern side from Capernaum to this, um, this other region. I always have a hard time pronouncing it, the Gerasenes. Verse 1, watch this. They come to the other side, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus steps out, it's like immediately this guy just runs up to him and he's violent. He's frightening and everybody's scared of him just like they are of the, red, of the storm, right? They're afraid. They're terrified of this guy because violence is in him. There's an evil that is in him and it causes fear. And there's a lot of darkness in the story, right? There's a lot of tombs cutting himself because that's what evil does to you. It destroys. It tears down. It actually makes you less human, and this man runs up to Jesus. You can imagine the disciples in the boat and this guy in the scene is taking place. But if you jump down to verse six, when he saw, he sees Jesus from afar and he fell before him and he answers the question we've been asking. He cries out with a loud voice and he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you, do not torment me. What did Mark say? Who did Mark say Jesus is? He is the son of God. He is God in the flesh. He is God who's come to restore creation. But part of restoring creation is destroying evil. Jesus has come to destroy evil. And I know that takes us into categories that are difficult for some of us. We live in a materialistic world. 
We live in a culture, on the one hand, the only thing that's real is atoms and molecules and whatever math and philosophy, uh, not philosophy, but um, physics can prove, right? If it, I can't see it, it's not real. And that's the materialistic world we live in. And yet, you know, in Evergreen, there's also this very spiritualistic type world that these two things coincide, I don't know how. We're materialists, but on the other hand, we believe in good energy, right? Good spiritual energy and bad juju and good juju and good spirits and bad spirits, right? That's common, isn't it? And, and our culture kind of has this strange way of approaching the spiritual realm. We believe in it, but we, we make it stupid, right? It's crystals and I don't know. We, we kind of make it foolish, and yet we claim that it's just the material world that exists. And I understand if, if that's where you are, but I want to just quickly give you the, the biblical idea of evil, that the Bible has a different picture of evil, and you might recognize that. And where Jesus shows up because he is God, evil shows up really clearly. It may not show up the same way in front of you. Now, if you're in the fullness of God's presence, it might. But where Jesus went, evil got exposed because he's the light, right? The light of the world that's come to expose. So when you get with Jesus, sometimes he exposes you. Hey, Jason, I want to address that sin in your life. You've got bitterness. I want to stay in the shadows, right? I want to stay protected. I, I don't know if I can trust you. But he exposes, and we see that in the biblical story, that wherever Jesus is, these demonic spirits show up. And what is the Bible saying about evil? Now, evil is secondary to humanity. It's not natural to you. Understand, that's what the Bible claims. You were created in the image of God. You're created good. So evil is a secondary reality. It's a parasite that's come to kill now, what the Bible does is it takes that further and says the evil we do to each other, it gets magnified by a spiritual, personal force that we don't see. So when you don't do something to evil to someone, there is a demonic force. There are spirits out there that work through that evil, and they take it further. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever said something to someone, and it just it destroys them? You wanted to address something, but you came at them, and you came at them with all your hurt and all your rage, and you look back at that moment and you say, wait a minute, I just wanted to get honest with you, and I just destroyed you. And do you see that in the world, how conflicts get stirred up, and what do they do? They destroy life. And when evil takes hold of you, it causes you to see the world differently than Jesus does. Because when we look at people who do evil, how do we see them? As subhuman. That's demonic, guys. When you see an evil person do something, absolutely, we've seen that, right? In Israel, we see it in Gaza, we see it across the world in Ukraine, or you even hear it on the news. Like, I heard a story of a father that killed his three boys, and I was just, what? And when we see that, what do we want to do? What does evil want to do? It wants to take that person and say, you're not human, which means I can destroy you. Evil begets evil, doesn't it? Now, how does Jesus see this man? Do you notice that? Do you notice the way he sees the evil and he realizes, hey, maybe this guy opened himself up to this. Do you think some of this could be his fault? Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't negate that. And yet there's an aspect of it that he can't control. And maybe, you know, sometimes the way that demonic spirits get into our life is through unconfessed sin. I don't know if you realize that. It has a foothold. Have you heard that language? says that bitterness becomes a root, right? 
And, and it causes you to see people and God differently. And there's, there's ways, there's temptations, there's lies that come in and it causes us to see the world differently. Well, how does Jesus look at that? He wants to rescue us. He wants to destroy evil without destroying us. Why? Because we're creating the image of God. We are good. And how do we overcome evil? How does God overcome evil? With more evil? You know, how do you overcome a guy who's screaming at you? Scream at him louder, right? It doesn't work. You overcome evil with, with good. You overcome evil with good. And in this story, what's going to happen is, is that's going to lead Jesus to the cross. Because you notice the way that he cares for this man. Did you notice at the end, I wish we had more time, but he had compassion on him. He sees this man who's violent and vile. Would you, see, would you have compassion on somebody like that? No, because we see it as, as just their choice. That person made those decisions. They created that problem. It's your fault. How often do we hear that, right? Jesus sees something greater. He's come to set us free, to release us from the things that keep us in bondage, whether that's spiritual darkness or that's sin, or that's the way we see God or see ourselves. And, and at the end of the story, what happens is the people are terrified not, no longer of this man, right? They're afraid of Jesus. And they say, get out of here. We don't understand who you are. What are these stories telling us? Guys, this is a, a side of Jesus we need to sit in and we need to see and we need to recognize that he is God in human flesh come to destroy evil. This is the power of God. And you know why that's so important is we live in a world that there is a lot of frightening things that hit us. But the one who's with us is greater than the storms in life. That's the underlying narrative of this is that we may find ourselves in situations God doesn't care. And what's our response need to be? Do you remember that, how we define, what does it mean to be in Jesus' family? You're my mother, brother, sisters. It's those who sit at his feet and they listen. And in listening, they do his will. How do we overcome evil? When it hits us, we need to run like the disciples do to Jesus. And we need to cry out. And we need to be honest with him. If we don't think he cares, did you notice they were honest? And yet Jesus still addressed what was going on because they were honest with him. And this is the God we worship. And I'm not sure how that hits you today. I'm not sure where that, that strikes your life, maybe in terms of what you're dealing with. The challenges you see in your own life, it could be the evil that you've encountered and experienced. Well, God wants to use that. He wants to redeem it. He wants to bring out of it good. Because did you notice, he sends this man off as his representative now. That's crazy, right? One, he sees this man as worthy of redemption, though he's violent and evil. He redeems him. He sees the image of God. And then he uses him. He gives him purpose, dignity, and life. That's what the gospel does. And he wants to do that for us as well. But we have to be willing, guys, today just to bring it to him. Can we bring that to the one who is compassionate and yet that powerful? Hey, as we conclude this morning, we're going to celebrate communion. And if you didn't grab the elements, I want to encourage you to do that. The reason we do communion at the end of our service, one, is Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So when we gather, we want to remember Jesus. The power is in the gospel. The gospel is the power of God. And maybe you're here today and, and you've never responded to the gospel, to the good news that through Jesus we have access to the Father. 
Because the reason this evil has come in the world is in part because we rebelled. We chose to have eyes that don't see, ears that don't hear. And through the grace of God, he says, all you got to do is turn and turn towards me and say, Jesus, I, I need you. I need you. Forgive me. Redeem me. And the story of the Bible is that God comes in through the power of the Holy Spirit. He redeems us. He gives us newness of life to walk with him. So as we hold those elements, would you just spend that time with him in prayer? And then we'll collectively share it together. we set our eyes not on what is seen but Father we want to set our eyes on what is unseen we see a lot but what we see in the world that wants to teach us about you Father and teach us about ourselves what we see is temporary but Jesus you are eternal and the spirit of God through Jesus dwells in us and Father you want to deliver us and I pray that prayer of deliverance over people in this room. You are powerful, Jesus. And in the name of Jesus, darkness flees. In the name of Jesus, lies are dispelled. In the name of Jesus, bodies get healed. Oppression in the name of Jesus is released. And healing can begin. Father, whatever areas you want to address in us where we are not following under the authority the power of Jesus Christ, where we have allowed darkness and sin and brokenness to come into our lives. Under the name of Jesus, we ask for healing, forgiveness, deliverance. Set us free. And then, Father, help us to walk in freedom. And I pray for each one of us that we would fight for each other and not against each other. Father, help us to fight for Jesus in each other not to be offended by differences of belief and thought, but instead together to put Jesus at the center, to sit around him and be a people that are distinctive because they, they look like Jesus. Help us, Father. On the night in which you were betrayed, Jesus took bread, he broke it and gave thanks, and he said, take and eat, for this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance. same way after supper Jesus took the cup he said this cup it represents the new covenant that is now established in my blood as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup together we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns would you please stand with me I want to really encourage you today our prayer team is going to come forward and I want you to know those that come forward they love to pray, and I think God gives them wisdom about how to pray for you. And if you're here today and you feel 
a heaviness and you know you need to just simply be prayed for. Would you have the boldness to come up front maybe after the service or even during the service? So prayer team, would you guys come forward and let's worship together.